Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, happy holidays. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers a tremendous range of customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from, along with numerous style options so you can make your site look just how you want it to look. It's all about functionality and convenience. And hey, Squarespace now offers 3D shipping visualization. There's Squarespace for musicians. And uh, just recently, Squarespace launched two new apps, the Metrics app and the Blog app, There are so many good things happening over at Squarespace. Best of all, it's simple to use. But, uh, you know, if for any reason you need help, Squarespace has a terrific professional support team at the ready 24-7. And remember, these people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. You heard me correctly. This is not a dream. The people in the Care Bear Lair are there for you. They care, and they're there. I swear. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Plus, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content will always look great on every device, every time. So let's go, people. Let's start a trial right now. No credit card required. Start building your website. Visit squarespace.com. And when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHER12. Again, that offer code is OTHER12. You do that, you get 10% off. And hey, it's the holiday season. Perhaps you can give someone the gift of Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com right now and take advantage of this spectacular offer. It's available for you. It's an outstanding way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a holiday extravaganza. This is my gift to you. 
I apologize in advance. Thanks for listening. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're well. I hope you're uh, surviving out there at the mall, uh, at the office, at home, under your desk, wherever you happen to be. Uh, My name is Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles, the uh, entertainment capital of the world. I'm sitting in a chair, if you can imagine that. And uh, I'm actually going to be heading out of town later this week, getting out of Los Angeles. Uh, My wife and I are taking uh, our three-year-old daughter to New York City for a few days. And uh, it'll be her first time in New York. I'm very excited about this. I've had this plan for a while. I want to be with my daughter the first time she uh, ever sees great cities of the world. Great places, both uh, urban and, I guess, uh, rural. (laughs) Some of them, at least, you know, like New York City, Paris, uh, maybe Rome, Vienna. This is the idea, anyway, in my brain. Because if I do this, then, you know, later in life, if uh, she ever happens to be in one of these cities and something uh, not so great happens... Like, uh, for example, she gets her heart broken. Then hopefully that particular incident won't uh, ruin the city for her. It won't be her primary experience of it. You know, she'll be able to go there uh, in the future and have uh, a foundation of happier memories. If that makes any sense. (laughs) Am I overthinking this? I just worry about her. I'm a dad. I don't want New York City to be ruined uh, for my uh, daughter by some uh, confused idiot uh, hipster guy in the year 2034. My guest today is uh, Jonathan Miles. His new novel, which is generating uh, a tremendous amount of critical acclaim, is called Want Not. It is available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in hardcover. And uh, it's really great to have him here. You're going to like hearing from him, and he and I are going to be talking in just a minute. Before we begin, though, I uh, thought I would take uh, just a few seconds to share with you some of my favorite books of 2013, because this is what happens at the end of the year uh, every year. People make their lists. People name their favorites. I find it a little bit uh, onerous, which I've uh, talked about before. But, you know, it's a fun game, ultimately. It's harmless, sharing your favorites. So... Uh, You know, I'll play along. It's Christmas. It's Hanukkah. I get it. It's Kwanzaa. Is it Kwanzaa? (laughs) I have no idea. So let's do this. Let me, uh, and let me preface uh, by saying that, you know, I might have strange taste in books that might be out of step with most listeners. Uh, And lately, uh, my reading has leaned heavily in the direction of nonfiction, which I've discussed before. That is not a commentary on anything other than my personal reading taste, which fluctuates year to year. That's all it is. So I'm not trying to make a sweeping value judgment on anything. I'm just going to tell you about five books that I read this year that uh, really stuck to me. And I should also say that I have a terrible memory. I don't even remember what I read this year. (laughs) I'm sure I'm forgetting something. So... Uh, that said, here are five books that I really enjoyed in 2013, not all of which, uh, I should say were published in 2013. That doesn't matter to me. That's not the way that I read. 
these are the ones that's that I read this year that I you know that I found most memorable five of them do you hear that <laughs> this sounds like there's a large animal in the wall in my office so anyway uh, here we go with my uh, favorite five books that I read in 2013 one book uh, that I really uh, really enjoyed and that really uh, was a powerful experience for me was Men We Reaped, the memoir by Jesmyn Ward, the uh, National Book Award winning author of Salvage the Bones. Uh, that book is available now from Bloomsbury. And I had Jesmyn on this program uh, not too long ago. And I got to talk with her about the book. And I think this is probably the most purely emotional reading experience that I had this year. Like I read it in one sitting and uh, was pretty crushed by it. It's a book that shakes you. You know, it's a very heavy story, very beautifully told, uh, very smartly structured book. And it's not without its moments of light either. You know, there are those. But, uh, you know, it has a lot to say about race in America and about poverty and the ways in which our society fails uh, young black <clears throat> young black men in particular it's a very powerful book and uh, you know even though i'm a, a white dude from the midwest uh, far removed you know from the world of this story it spoke to me in uh, personally in ways that i i did not expect and you know i have roots in the south family down there i have uh, liberal white guilt and so on and I, you know, this book showed me uh, people and uh, lives and places that I've seen before, uh, but only in passing. And and this book delivered them to me with a measure of depth that, uh, you know, I hadn't previously been able to access. So it taught me a lot is what I'm saying. You should read it. It's very good. So there's one. And then another book that I really loved uh, was The Man Who Quit Money by Mark Sundin. And uh, this was published by Riverhead back in 2012. It's about a guy named Daniel Suelo. Uh, Daniel Suelo, who uh, back in the year 2000 took all of the money that he had in the world, which uh, was only $30. <laughs> and uh, he put it in a phone booth. And he has lived without uh, money ever since. Completely without money. He buys nothing. He has no bank account, no credit card, no phone, nothing. He lives in a cave most of the time, like up in Moab. He hitchhikes, he has a bike, he dumpster dives. Uh, he's very spiritually uh, oriented, a very deep thinker, very well read. And uh, he's, got a very, you know, he's got a really incredible life story that uh, Sundin does a great job of uncovering. You know, I tore through this book. I really loved it and it made me think. And I think it speaks very well to the times that we live in and the struggles that so many of us are facing, uh, be they financial, spiritual, or otherwise. And, you know, you hear some, you hear about somebody doing this just kind of off the cuff, some guy just giving up money, living in a cave. <laughs> and it's very easy to respond by dismissing them. And, you know, just calling them crazy or whatever. But then, you know, if you read this book and you read about Suelo and the life that he leads 
and uh, more to the point, the quality of the li- uh, of life that he has, uh, it makes you stop and uh, reconsider, or it made me stop and reconsider. So uh, I'm not going to move into a cave anytime soon, but uh, I really enjoyed The Man Who Quit Money. It's another one of my favorites from this year, and uh, I recommend it. So uh, number three, and you know these are these are in no particular order, by the way. It's just five, you know. There's no order. So the third book on my little list is called The Trip to Echo Spring by Olivia Lang. Let me make sure I'm getting that right. Yeah, Olivia Lang. I just had like, I know that it's Olivia Lang, but I just had one of those brief moments of fear where I was, you know, concerned that I was going to screw it up. So Olivia Lang, uh, who I should mention is going to be my guest on this program very soon. The Trip to Echo Spring is due out in January from uh, Picador. And I strongly recommend that you pre-order it uh, or get it when it, you know, when it arrives uh, in stores and whatnot. Uh, It's a book that I wish I had written. This is probably the book that I was most impressed with uh, from the standpoint of prose, just the sentences, you know, the sentences, beautiful sentences. She can really write. Olivia can't. And I, I, you know, and I was also dazzled by, uh, the ways in which she, uh, structured this book and the ways in which she melded genre to really interesting, uh, effect. This is a travel book. It's a work of literary biography, and uh, it contains some of the most stunning nature writing that you're likely to read, uh, anytime soon. And it, it all, it's also a memoir. It's a very personal book, very personal story. So it somehow manages to be all of these things at once. And it was like catnip to me. I really loved it. And uh, after reading it, I did something I almost never do. I sent uh, Olivia, uh, who happens to be British, an email. I sent her like a fan letter. And I told her that I thought the book was great. Uh, I was lucky to get a uh, galley a few months ago. So uh, how's that for an endorsement? The book is called The Trip to Echo Spring. The subtitle is On Writers and Drinking, and it uh, it centers in particular on uh, Tennessee Williams, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, John Cheever, John Berryman, and Raymond Carver, all of whom were uh, spectacularly boozy. So just trust me, if you like books uh, and writing, or drinking for that matter, this is a no-brainer. I predict uh, good things for this book and for Olivia who has a lot of talent. Okay. So number four, uh, is a book that I just finished. It's called straw dogs by John Gray. Uh, he's a professor of European thought at the London school of economics. And this book is uh, a work of philosophy. That's pretty radical in its approach. And, it, you know, it offers a, a very aggressive and often very convincing attack on liberal humanism. Uh, the belief that so many of us have uh, on earth, you know, so many human beings have in the specialness of the human race in relationship to other animals. Uh, It attempts to dismantle the faith that so many of us have in technology, thinking that technology is going to save us and what, you know, and so on and so forth. And it's a devastating book in a lot of ways. It's it's a very uh, powerful argument. 
the thinking is lucid, uh, the writing is super clear and concise and confident. And uh, I imagine that this is going to be a book that I'm going to reread many times, which I think is one of the uh, higher compliments that you can pay a book. And, uh, you know, it's still early. I just finished it within the last 24 hours. So it's fresh in my mind. But uh, even so, I think had I read this 12 months ago, it would still be on this list. Uh, it was published back in t- uh, 2002 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And, uh, you know, like what else to say about it? I don't know if I'm prepared to say too much more because I'm still processing it and I, I might want to read it again. It's very similar in some ways to the book 10 billion, uh, which I've mentioned on this program just recently, uh, that book by Stephen Emmett, which is out there now from vintage, uh, straw dogs had a, you know, something of a similar effect on my brain, somewhat devastating, somewhat, uh, you know, it's like you put the book down when you're finished with it and you, you get up from your chair and the world is different. That's not an overstatement. It really isn't. So uh, I guess you would call that then a dual endorsement. Straw Dogs by John Gray, uh, 10 Billion by Stephen Emmett, neither of which is going to fill you with cheer, by the way. <laughs> but uh, together they, co- they combine to fill the fourth slot on my list. And so, uh, rounding out, uh, rounding things out at number five. And by the way, I am uh, now realizing that, uh, most of these books are sort of heavy, if not all of them. (laughs) I don't know what that means. It's just what happened. And, uh, these are the books that I couldn't shake. So number five, uh, is called 2,500 random things about me too, by, uh, Matthias Wiegner, Wiegner. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that. My apologies. Um, you know, Matthias's book is published by uh, Le Figue Press here in Los Angeles, a small press, and it is derived entirely from Facebook status updates. Uh, autobiographical, reflective, confessional, meditative, often moving, and uh, very illuminating Facebook status updates. Lists. So it's formally inventive, conceptually inventive. It originated as kind of a lark. Uh, Matthias or Matthias had been uh, getting chain letters from his Facebook friends. Um, it lists, <laughs> uh, which I've bemoaned the, uh, the pervasiveness of lists, but you know, these chain letters he was getting on Facebook, people would write 25 random things about themselves and then tag 25 of their friends and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, Matthias was getting these and, uh, he started, uh, to, to do his own and he then did something truly riveting with it and created this book. He took the 25 things chain letter and started posting one per day on his Facebook wall and putting real energy and artistry and effort into it. And eventually came up with a, a massive list of 2,500 things that in the end functions you know, in a way that defies categorization. Is it a memoir? Kind of. But not totally. You just have to read it. It's called 2,500 Random Things About Me Too. 
Okay, so that's it, folks. That's my year-end list. Uh, if you're looking for something to read, you, you can't go wrong with any of those, as far as I'm concerned. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Jonathan Miles. His new novel, Want Not, is now available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is a great pleasure to have him here, and uh, I hope you enjoy our conversation. I certainly did. This is Jonathan Miles, and his new novel, once again, is called Want Not. I am in an eight-foot by eight-foot plywood shed. Um... On the, uh, in my backyard in rural New Jersey. Okay, so are you like New Jersey, like suburban New York City, or are you South Jersey? No, I am West Jersey. Okay. A little known uh, pocket right along the Delaware River. Uh, so far West Jersey that if I look out my window, I can see Pennsylvania. Okay, wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very little known um, little pocket here, mostly uh, mostly farms. What got you out there? Just to, because I know you lived in New York City. Did you have enough of New York, and you wanted to get out and have some air to breathe? I was moving around the city in a kind of uh, in a kind of uneasy orbit. Um, I wasn't actually in the city. I moved uh, north from Mississippi. Uh, let's see, that would be 13 years ago. But I had way too many dogs to live in the city. How many so dogs? How many dogs were we talking? It was five at the time. Oh, okay. And when I told people in the city that I'm, I'm, I'm moving up there, where can I live with five dogs? The most common answer was Canada. <laughs> but I did find a little a spot, uh, Rockland County, New York, about 45 minutes northwest of the city, and then moved a little further out uh, once I added some children to those dogs. But I landed in New Jersey uh, courtesy of, of a writer friend, uh, who had found this little town and decided she was going to um, invite invite all her friends to come live come live here, and uh, and so I did. So wait a minute, you have a writer friend who it just it found a town and invited her writer friends to. Well, I don't understand. Yes, but I know that sounds like a commune, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, Are you in a cult? <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Um, so the writer friend, not to be cryptic, is uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, who's an old friend of mine. Um, and people might know from that little book, Eat, Pray, Love. And um, she found this town after she came back from Bali and was raving about it. And we were, my family and I were coming down to visit all the time. And then one day 
Yeah, we had sort of a, a vague geographical dissatisfaction from where we were living before, and uh, she said you should you should move here, and it seemed like a good idea, and so far it has been. Wow! Um, and so, how many how many writers are there now? I feel like that you know, there's you, four. There's there's four of us now. Um, four of us who've sort of uh, gravitated here. I feel like people because a lot of my listeners are writers, so I, you may have more soon. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's a you know, it's a good place. I don't know if 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 geog- I don't know if one place is better for um for writing or not for writing. Um, for me, I just need somewhere where I, I you know I'm out in the woods, which I have been living in the woods vaguely. Do you, um, I mean okay? So that's an interesting question because I think that it's easy to get preoccupied with place, or at least it's easy to get to the point where you are entertaining notions that to be in a better place would make writing easier. Yes. So is it easier for you to write when you're in a more bucolic, you know, like uh, country environment, for lack of a better way of putting it, than it is to be in some like really hyper urban environment like New York? It's not easier for me to write. It's easier for me to live. And those two are kind of inextricable. Um, so if I'm not satisfied with where I'm living, I'm not going to be satisfied with, with where, the, you know, the setting that I'm writing in either. Um, I'm not one of those writers who can, for instance, write on the road or write in a hotel room or write on a train or write, you know, upside down in a trapeze. I do. I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. Yeah. Um, so I do need to be in some sort of, you know, somewhat soundproof little cell uh, with a bunch of cigarettes um, in order to, to make this work. Well, no, it's funny that you say that because I was just like just in recent times I was watching like that Salinger documentary. And like he was in World War Two, like riding Catcher in the Rye, like in between battles, and I'm like, what the fuck, man? Like that seems, or, or like you know, people who are traveling and you know they're hungover, but they still get up at five in the morning and get their pages. Like that seems really hard to me. Uh, and to be in a war, I, to be I'm in a war all, theater, yeah, I'm in awe of those people. Um, I'm friends with some of them. I don't understand how they do it. Um, it's just not in my constitution. Um, it's like uh, it's like Faulkner writing uh, as I lay dying in the boiler room um, of a uh, uh, a building on the campus of, of Old Miss. You know, sort of stealing away from his job in order to you know scribble lines down and going back to work and faking it. It's just it's unfathomable to me. What is that? Do you think that's talent, or do you think that's like some sort of weird like mania or focus? Like, is it just easier for those people, or do you know what I'm saying? Have you do you have any idea what that is? <laughs> Well, I, I guess to be charitable to myself, which I always like to do, I suppose it's just different constitutions, different ways that you go about it and what you need. Um, you know, it, I know also some people who, and there's, there's you know, literary history is full of writers like this, who write best when their life is in complete disarray, you know, and ultimately they go about sort of wrecking their lives in order to, um, to write well. Uh, I'm not one of those either. Um, if my life's in a shambles, um, so is my writing. Uh, I think that means I'll probably end up dying a little happier than maybe uh, some other right. folks might have. But um, you know, but that's that's just that's just how I'm made or wired. Okay, so do you write in that shed? Is that your is that your space? Yeah, that's my that's, yeah, that's my little shed. Oh man, uh, see that sounds nice to me. That sounds nice. No, 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 it's pretty grim. I should describe it. It's it's really it's a, it's eight by eight feet. It's plywood, and the interior is just exposed insulation. That's okay, though. That's okay. It's a separate structure. <laughs> it's a separate structure. That's important. I need a commute, yeah. Yeah, you have a commute, and then it's sort of, you know, you, you're, you're walled off from the world. Like, I, I, yeah. you know, that sort of isolation or um, separation is the yeah. kind, of, kind of space that I would need, you know. I can, yeah. 
I don't like any kind of distractions. I don't want, I can't even write a, in a cafe. Like I don't want anyone around me. <laughs> oh God, no, I could never write in a cafe. I, I have a friend who, who, who worked for, oh God, for the last year in a Panera, uh, one of the chain stores. Uh. And I'd say, how do you do that? I would always feel like I'd be, I'd feel like I was in a window display. Um, you know, I'm sort of, I'd be so, there'd be so many layers of self-consciousness right. I, of I, the writing that I, 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 it would, it would, it would destroy me. Early in my twenties, like, I would try to do that. And then I, I eventually arrived at the, uh, at the conclusion that it felt like I was like advertising my introspection or something like I've. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was, it's the same thing I used to, uh, on occasionally in my early twenties, take a book to a bar. Uh, <laughs> and it was that same feeling where the words are coming through, but they're not really registering because I am I am so focused on the act of reading in this bar that I'm just an asshole. You're like I'm reading the stranger in a bar. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm yeah, that guy. I I'm have, yeah, I'm, yeah. It was so, so yeah, that guy. So, yeah, I need to be. Yeah, I need to be walled off. All right. So uh, where are you from? I mean, like, where where'd you grow up? You you say, you're from what? I want to say I remember reading Cleveland. Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And then um, left there about the age of 11 and went to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I left there in an adolescent huff when I was uh, 16. Ended up back in Cleveland. Uh, I'm sorry, this is a long answer. Living, uh, living with a sister. And then I rolled down to Mississippi and, and stayed there for as long as I could. Okay, so... Um, what, first of all, your, your folks, like, are your folks writerly? Do you have any kind of like lineage that you're a part of creatively or are you kind of the outlier? Um, my father, it, uh, my father tried to write as, uh, as a young man. He was a, um, he was a son of, of Polish immigrants, went off to World War II. When he came back from World War II, he, he tried writing and I only, this is a really awful story. Um, but when I was, uh, how I know about this is the awful story. When I was in my teens, I had a pretty hard time with my parents, which is all my own fault, really. But, uh, I took up writing early on and I was, you know, holed up in my bedroom with, I guess that would have been a manual typewriter back then. Um, just hating my parents and writing various manifestos. <laughs> and, and my father came in. And he had a, a sheaf of paper in his hand, and he said, uh, you know, I used to write, too. And I kind of looked up at him with that sneer that teenagers have, an unforgivable sneer. And he said, I'll just leave this here if you want to read it. And at the time, I didn't. At the time, I think, it, it just felt, you know, at that age, you were trying to, you know, you are trying to separate yourself so deeply from your parents and, and, and trying not to be what they want you to be and et cetera, and et cetera. Um, so the idea that he had had literary aspirations at one point and failed was almost uh, pa too painful for me to, to acknowledge. And I never read them. And I, you know, I kind of, he asked me if I'd read them and I said, no, um, years later I did. Um, we reconciled and made up. Um, so he had, he had ambitions. My mother was a great reader. Um, and when I say great, I mean the old-fashioned kind of reader that I feel doesn't exist like it used to, the Book of the Month Club reader, the reader who felt it was somehow her cultural duty to to read the big book of the season and to keep abreast of the reviews. Right. Um, you know, that um, that sort of 1950s, 1960s um, reader that, 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 that just because, you know, uh, lit was 
something you were you were supposed to know. You're supposed to know about the, the latest movies and the latest, you know. Uh, now it'd be TV shows. It wasn't then, but and you know the latest theater and latest book. So um, she was that kind of reader. But uh, you know that was uh, so. There were books. There were lots of books around the house. And so okay. And so then uh, this like angsty period in your teens, which you said was mostly your fault, like. Where did they come from? Were you just uh, to be typical teenage stuff? Was your father? You said he was in the military, so like, was he strict with you or something? And were you like pushing back against that? No, uh, it, it, we we were sort of Sunbelt refugees. Um, there was that it's a common story. Nineteen eighties. Um, Russell Banks portrayed it so well in uh, Continental Drift. Um, you know, just left the snowbelt for the Sunbelt, thinking everything was going to be better economically. And, and all that, and of course, it just it, it didn't work. Uh, my father was unemployed for a long time. We were, you know, not well off, and just stresses. You know, the ground sort of cracked underneath all of us. And you add, you know, adolescence into that, um, and it just it, it was just a it just didn't work out very well. Um, so for you know, I think in a sense, books were um, became a way of escape. That period. And you know, um, and music as well, right? Well, music as well, and and I turned to music. So I left writing and books. I, I turned about fourteen, I guess. And at that age, uh, you know, being a bookish kid is just not in your best interest. <laughs> at least, you know, <laughs> at least not at least, publicly. Yeah, at least not publicly. At least at the high school that that I entered, and and I had to find something else to do. Uh, sports always bored me. So um, so I took up guitar and so devoted the next few years of my life to death metal. Death metal? Yeah. Why death metal? Was it, I guess it was just, an, it gave you a vehicle to express your, your angst? Like, or... Yeah, well, there's probably, there's probably 50% that and then 50% the, the dudes I was hanging out with. Yeah. Um, I now had my secret, uh, I was a secret closet Springsteen fan too, which... At the time, was my greasy little secret. Uh, <laughs> so I'd tell, I'd tell all my friends who'd be riding around, listening to Maiden and all that, and I'd go home and, and play like Nebraska. So wait, Just hope, yeah, hope but, but Nebraska's. I mean, I mean, it's totally different, but it's it's dark. Nebraska's not like any kind of sunshine, you know. No, no. Okay, so I wasn't going back and playing Dancing in the Dark and <laughs> with you know with, the, with one of those Tyco microphones in my hand. It wasn't that, but yeah. Um, but at the time, that was that was you know late eighties. That was just resolutely uncool um, to be doing, especially out west. Yeah. Um, but then I had this major um, shift. I discovered Jimi Hendrix, and through Jimi Hendrix, discovered blues, and and that really that was that completely recalculated the GPS unit on my life at that point. Okay, okay, and that'll get you to Mississippi. Before we get there, I want to uh, ask you, because this just popped into my head regarding death metal, and forgive me because I don't know a lot about death metal, but I did watch a documentary uh, not too long ago. It was like last year. I thought it was the best movie I saw in all of 2012, and it was called Last Days Here. It was about the lead singer of Pentagram. Oh, wow. Have you seen it? I have not, no. Okay, you should watch it. <laughs> everybody, yeah. everybody listening should watch it. It's like... It's an it's it's an insane movie, and I feel I think Pentagram was death metal. If they're yeah, if they're yeah. they were okay, good. If they're not, yeah. I was going to be embarrassed. But um, it's a just it's an it's a mind blowing film, and you have to watch it all the way to the end. That's the key. Yeah, 
And as far as that distinction goes, I've never really even been quite clear where death metal blurs into just metal. Right. Um, it's all I about hair, death. I know, I know hair metal when I see it, but the rest, I think we can, there's some, there's some gradients that we can fudge, yeah. Right, okay. So um, so you left Cleveland at 11, and it was the, the, the move to Phoenix was, uh, you know, uh, was undertaken for... Uh, financial reasons or whatever, trying to start yeah. over and reboot. That didn't work out so well. You became um, an angsty teen. You rebelled, and then at sixteen, you ran away. Yes. What does yeah. that mean? Like you, you like hitchhike? I mean, did you pack up a bag and take a train? What did you do? Uh, no, it was uh, it was more of a. Uh, uh, I, I took a plane. Um, I just I just flew um, back to Cleveland. I had a sister twelve years older than me um, who was still in Cleveland. And I just had enough and uh, and left and decided I would live with her. At the time, I thought I was just going to um, gonna play music, kind of hobo around. Uh, she convinced me that I should finish high school. So, uh, so I did that uh, as a favor to her. And then she told me I should go to college. I had absolutely no interest in doing that. Uh, but she just kept pressuring me and pressuring me. And finally, one day, I was reading a magazine called Living Blues Magazine. And uh, I saw that it was published at the University of Mississippi. And I said, all right, if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to this one. So I did. Isn't it a, it's amazing to me how when you're like, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, uh, you can make major life decisions based on the most arbitrary things imaginable. Like I went to the University of Colorado based on a photograph. On a brochure, you know, it tr it truly was that. I was like, this place looks nice, you know, like yeah, that was it. And my wife uh, went to Pepperdine for much the same reason. We like we were both from the Midwest, and we were, I think, tired of like gray winters or whatever. And it was like, okay, you know, like this looks beautiful. Like I'll go here. Uh, but, you know, at that age, you don't even if all the information, even if all the consequences were laid out for you, at that age, I don't think you could actually make that decision really any more any better than a kind of arbitrary picture yeah. or, um, you know, or something in the, in the fine print of a magazine. But, um, but I mean, at least you were following some, I mean, you had a passion. You liked this, you liked music, you were into the blues, you were on the right track. That's a good breadcrumb. Get to Mississippi if that's what you're into, right? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, there, I mean, it, it, yeah, it wasn't as, as quite as, as, as random as throwing a dart. Um, but yeah, there was, so there was a passion there. I figured I'm going to go, I'm going to go follow that. And, uh, and so I did, but then that, that sort of uh, twisted back on me with uh, in, back into writing. Okay, so why I want to ask you about the blues because, um, I, I mean, it, it seems like generationally because like we're we're roughly the same age. Like I'm 38. Um, yeah, 40, 42. Yeah, 42. Okay, so uh, I mean, blues music. I, I mean, w we had exposure to it, but to to really get invested in it, it seems kind of. Uh, specialized you know what was it that that got you there i think there were two things um and i didn't realize this at the time but i've thought about it since wondering that same question um because why does a 16 and 17 year old kid um turn to something like that that really is um you know quite foreign uh, to me to my experience but i think there were two things one was it was adult it was grown up um I was, you know, I was living with my sister who, who was gone most of the time traveling for work. So, you know, I was, in a, in a sense, had an early adulthood thrust upon me, or I thrust it upon myself. And those blues songs did not sound, they weren't adolescent. Um, 
you know, they weren't about uh, they weren't about promises necessarily. They were about disappointments. They were about just just grit. You know, the uh, the dirt under the the fingernails of life. And and I think I'd latched on to something. Um, I latched on to something there. Uh, the other thing um, on blues, well, you know, there was also musically, it was just appealing to me. Um, but the other thing on blues was there was this very attractive idea, the laughing to keep from crying idea in blues. These were terribly sad songs that were often set to this, you know, danceable, you know, sort of sensual rhythm. And and there's that blues line, laughing to keep from crying, which I think spoke something to, you know, the 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 Irish DNA on my mother's side. That's a very kind of Irish idea as well. I got some of that. I think yeah. I I respond very much to that idea. Mm-hmm. And and that's never left me. That that's just that worldview that uh, I was wired, I was wired with. And so I think I I found that uh, appealing, and and it spoke to me somehow. Well, okay, and then another thing I want to ask you about, but particularly in that age range where you're like, you know, between 16 and say 24, which is when I think music has maybe maybe everything has the greatest or highest like level of emotional impact most consistently. Uh, it's an you know it's an intense time. At least it was for me, and I felt um, uh, very invested in music and art, you know, and. Uh, I can't keep up with it the way that I used to just by virtue of, I don't know what it is. Maybe I just I've got busy. I have a kid. I have other things in life that prevent me from maybe spending as much time on it as I, as I once did. But uh, I, I also remember like how much social capital there was in uh, what shows you were seeing, what bands you listened to, like h- how you could talk about bands and music and, do you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. among, amongst your peers and like, it was like, how many shows have you seen? Did you see this band before they got big? And like, what venues did you see them in? And, and you know, if you, if you're listening to blues music, which like you say, is like really gritty. There's, there's just like kind of a undeniable authenticity, uh, especially to that old Mississippi Delta blues that, you know, it, it's almost like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You can't knock it. Do you know what I'm saying? It was, yeah, well, but it, I was an outlier in that. And you talk about that social capital that you that you build up with that. And I didn't have that. Um, I, I had that when I moved to Mississippi. But early on, I was the only one. I didn't know anybody else um, who listened to this stuff, at least certainly nobody else my age. I used to go down. I remember I would um, have this old 79 Ford Fairmont station wagon. And uh, I would drive it to downtown Cleveland to Prospect Avenue to uh, these old record stores. It was the only place at the time you could find blues. And, uh, um, you know, and I, I was I was this anomaly at the time. I was just this strange little white kid, you know, coming through the, the cassette decks looking for Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and all that. Um, in fact, I remember a, a time, I guess I was on a train. That's where I took the rapid transit in Cleveland. And I had, uh, I just bought a Howlin' Wolf uh, uh cassette you know i mean you're, you're a kid you're just staring at it you're reading the liner notes and there was a girl about my age sitting next to me and she kind of looks over and she says Is that alternative <laughs> and you know i kind of smiled like oh it's so alternative <laughs> you have no idea just you have how... no idea how alternative <laughs> this is um, and uh, but i think i also i liked that it was my own uh, you know T- yeah it was your own turf it was, it was it was my own little uh terrain i eventually did find a uh 
a guitar player in Cleveland that I, I played with. Um, he must have been in his 40s. Um, God, yeah, yeah, late 40s at the time. And yeah, that was my that was my best friend through senior year of high school. Um, was this you know 40 let's say 46 year old you know um, guitar player who you know would get into my car, would drive around the night listening to stuff and drinking Colt 45. Okay, I was going to say because were you were you were you boozy because of the blues music and um, you know angsty teenage life tend to you know involve some alcohol, right? Yeah, but not terribly. Uh, I was before I left in uh, Phoenix. I was boozy and druggy and all the all that stuff. But once I was on my own, not so much. Um, you know, in fact, I don't think even during that time I was living with my sister, I don't think I was even drunk, you know, 17, 18. Um, I'd kind of sip on that Colt 45 uh, with this guy riding around, but I was so, I don't know, I was so intensely driven to this music that um, I actually didn't, God, this sounds so sort of goofy, I didn't even need anything else. Um, that was, you know, I just lived and breathed it. Uh, I would go, there was, a, there was a bar not far from our house, a brother's lounge, uh, and it was just sort of a, it was a half biker, half blues bar. It was a weird mix. Um, I'd go in there and sit in, and I don't even remember having a beer. I was just, you know, I probably just sat there with a glass of milk or something. <laughs> reading a book. Yeah, reading, <laughs> reading The Stranger. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so the move to Mississippi, uh, how does that take place? You, you drive the Fairmont down there, or do you take a... No, by that time I'd gotten a, uh, see, the Dodge Ram 50 saved up. I got myself a nice truck okay and uh yeah drove down and and um and fell instantly in love with the place um you know it was like i had spent so much time with the musical geography of the place so to see to see these things you know in reality was just overwhelming for me um, like what things like the, the juke joints and stuff or yeah, the juke joints and even just, even just a sign, you know, you're riding down the, um, you know, you're riding down highway 61 and you see a turn off for Friars point And, you know, it's like suddenly there's a line from Robert Johnson songs coming to you and it's just, I don't know how to explain that little tingle, you know, you're here at sacred ground. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and there's something, I mean, um, you know, I have, my family comes from Louisiana, so I grew up, uh, spending a lot of time down there and there's something different about the South, you know, in terms of like the kind of a palpable sense of history and like a, a real sense of, um, I hate to use the word soul, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, that, I do. that's not I a, do. Fa- it's not a fake thing. Like when I go, I was just down in new Orleans, uh, you know, a few weeks ago for a wedding and just walking around, like it's just different, you know, and you feel it. And, um, I, there's something great about it. Yes, yeah, oh, there is. Although um, I did try living in New Orleans for a while, and I found it was a very difficult place to live. And uh, and I was actually writing by that time. I found it was a very difficult place to uh, live and write, which led to my theory that you know New Orleans should be, by all measures, the capital of American literature, just because of for so many reasons, sort of the, the ethnic currents that flowed in there, and the city's soul, and sort of the cultural um, you know variety that's in that city that should be. You know, the literature that that should have come out and be coming out of New Orleans should rival anything, for instance, that Chicago or or even New York has produced, and yet it hasn't. Um, Why not? Well, I uh, my, my, from my own experience is uh, in New Orleans, um, it's they don't really like you to be working in a room by yourself alone. It's a very social city, and it's also a city that 
um, I think that specializes in, in the ephemeral arts, you know? I mean, food and music um, and live music, you know, things that are meant to be enjoyed once in this kind of moment and then rebuilt the next day. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not a city that, that lends itself to that kind of, you know, brick-by-brick brick, um, kind of construction of novels, for instance. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. This is just um, my own pet theory, but I do, I do find it very interesting that, that New Orleans has not produced um, literature that, that it really should have. Yeah, well, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of distractions. There's great music. There's great food, you know, yeah. like right outside your door. Um, yeah. Like yeah. One, one of the highlights of this last trip, I got to take my daughter. I mean, we were just walking around and I live on the West Coast, so we had a time difference. So we were walking around the quarter and I just duck into uh, Preservation Hall with my daughter and the band was playing and she's three, but it was pretty cool, you know, just yeah. getting to show them that. And even at that age, she, you know, she was sort of slack jawed and clapping her hands. So it was cool. I, uh, my wife is from uh, close to New Orleans, uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast, about an hour uh, east of New Orleans, and uh, I take my kids there. Um, if we end up in the French Quarter, I find myself having to answer a lot of awkward questions. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's a, it's a totally different experience. Yeah. Being in, I was in the French Quarter for a bachelor party two years ago, and then the next time I was in New Orleans was with my three-year-old, and I was like, this is a lot different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is a very different experience, and you know, if you stay off of bourbon, it you you know you can avoid absolutely, absolutely, you yeah, can avoid yeah. the most the most awkward aspects of it. But um, yeah. <laughs> it's a great it's a great place. It's a uniquely you know it's a uniquely um, uh, it's a unique American city, and you can't say that about every American city. No, no, you can't. And I'm I'm constantly pulled there. My wife wants us to to live there, um, but I just it, the city also scares me. Yeah, um, as well, uh, sure. because if there's um, you know any in any kind of writing, I think there's this there's this this Calvinist streak that r- runs through just you know the, the process of writing, and so um, I, I'm almost afraid of, of <laughs> afraid of, of of rampant pleasure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's you have to. I mean, that's like why you you talked about that shed earlier, and that actually sounded like really great to me. <laughs> um, you have to. You know, be willing to. Yeah, I think you actually have to like that sort of thing. You know, there's you something do, right. Yeah, writing's an act of masochism. Yeah, there's um, something. Sure. Mon- yeah. There's something monastic about the pursuit. There just is. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, you know, if you step back and, and think about it, I mean, it is a crazy thing. You, you, you're locked up in a room talking to yourself. That in itself is just is just you know impeccably strange. In a desperate attempt to try to connect with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You communicate by locking yourself in a room and talking to yourself. <laughs> so, uh, so Oxford, Mississippi, uh, yeah. rich, rich with its uh, its own art, you know, literary tradition. And uh, you you arrived there, and what do you do? Did you enroll at uh, the University of Mississippi? I did, um, and I had a very typical, um, you know, uh, few years as an undergraduate in SEC school football games and all that kind of stuff. Um, did you wear a tie to the games? They wear ties. Yeah, you did yeah, that. Yeah. You did all that. Uh, and yeah, and the, and the Blazers and, and all that. Um, and so, you know, those years sort of passed, those first uh, two years just sort of passed in a, in a kind of degree. Uh, then I happened into a class, a creative writing class taught by Barry Hanna. I had never, I mean, I had, hadn't read much um, for past few years besides blues books and i never heard of barry hannah to my shame um didn't know who he was and i think i took the class 
to be honest. I think I took it because I thought it might be easy. Um, <laughs> just because I had written before as a kid, and I thought, you know, this shouldn't be that hard. And, and then Thunderstruck, really. I mean, just listening to, to Barry Hanna talk and... Um, so he was a good teacher, like I mean, because he, he was an amazing teacher, um, uh, but he, he, not in the kind of how-to way, not in the you know, here's how you write a story, but in a way that that he was so personally inspiring that you wanted to ascend to whatever plane he was on to be able to converse with him. You wanted you wanted to follow his brain where it went, and and you know this this this. This untrammeled imagination that he had, uh, it just seemed, you know, just, you just listen to him and go, wow, you can do that. You can say that. You can think that. And you can write that. And that was, um, that was, that was certainly, um, life changing, another pivot. Okay. So, yeah. Did that, did that pull you away from music and in, in the direction of literature permanently or? Yeah. Per, well, per, well per, I mean, I kept playing after that, but. You know, it's interesting with music. I had always, as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid, thought if I could ever play with my own band on Beale Street in Memphis, that's all I ever wanted. I, you know, you, you fix a point. Um, at least I do on a dream, or I did. I'm not sure I do that anymore. But you know, I had I had a fixed point on this dream, and somewhere around 1994, I guess I did that. You know, I played at PB King's Club uh, on Beale Street, and I remember walking out of that club. It was a good night. And thinking, oh shit! I did it, and I never practiced again. Really? Yeah, I done it. I mean, I just done. I, but I didn't have. I didn't. I didn't know anywhere else to go. Um, obviously, there are many places I could have gone. But my dream, I, it had ended there. That was the end of my choose your own adventure book. Well, but you know, it's funny that you say that. And <clears throat> this is a little bit of a different uh, scenario, but one that I think is related is that. Uh, you know, people who self-destruct when they reach the pinnacle and it happens a lot in like rock and roll, you know, you think of like these people where you're like, they have everything. What, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, you have to think that that's maybe part of it is like when you get to a summit and you're like, Oh, I did it. Like you, you happen to have writing as an interest, which probably was a good thing because if, if you didn't have it, you know, and then you play BB King's club, you walk out and then you're like, Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, shit, it's all over. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's all over. But I, you know, I think there's something to that. Um, do you feel like you have a set point with writing or have you learned your lesson and, <laughs> you know, it's better not to have one and you just keep climbing until, until it's over? Yeah, it's funny. No, I have no set point with writing and I don't even know what I would, I don't even know where I would place it if you forced me to at gunpoint. Um, I, you know, that's, um, I mean, writing has, has always been a kind of groping in the dark, um, not knowing exactly what I'm trying to do or where I'm going. So no, there is no fixed point. I don't see that happening with writing. Do you have a, do you have like, um, I mean, the, I guess there's always the obvious, like the musicality of words and how you build your sentences and so on and so forth. But like, can you uh, look back to your, your formative days as a blues musician and see ways in which that has informed the way you write and how your, you know, how your words line up on the page or anything like that? Like, did it give you any, you know, education that you can, um, I don't know, uh, talk about concretely. Well, probably, uh, is the best answer I can give you, but it's all somewhere in the, in the subconscious back in the, the circuit board. 
um, that I don't know, but I'm sure. I mean, the the you know, I have yet to find a writer I admire who is not a great admirer of music or a great listener of music. I do think um, the musicality of language is just another form of music. And I think that if you're immune to rhythm and immune to melody, it's probably going to show up in your writing. Um, I hope I don't sound like I'm flattering myself on that, but I do think that um, I, I do think there's there, there's a there's a musicality um, to writing, and you know you, you, your words and the way you the way you that your words enter the page is a little like the settings on an amplifier. Um, you know, it, it's how much reverb to put on there and how much and you know what pedal to use. I think there are some some analogies you could probably play with. with well, that. and just the and just the learning of it too. Like I've always, you know, because there's always like that that talk in writing circles and in writing workshops about finding your own voice. And there are a lot of phrases like the word the word process gets thrown around a lot, um, which can get a little nauseating after a while. But uh, you know, it's always about finding your individual voice and making sure that you're not being too. Um, you know, you're not imitating other people too much, but in music, you know, you start out learning by playing other people's songs and you get good at that. And then eventually you start to write your own stuff. And it makes sense to me that the same would be true of writing. And I think it definitely is, but I think that there's less, I don't know. It feels like there's less, uh, permission around that, around that particular. I agree. I agree fully with you. And I think that, that, that recommendation to find your own voice early is a, um, is ill-advised because that's exactly the way you learn music and you you start by copying I mean wholesale copying right um, you play in cover bands um, and you try to get you try to get your guitar from the sound exactly you know like Albert King's and you do everything you can because what you're doing when you're imitating and when you're copying is you're you're, you're sort of uh, I'm going to throw one more sort of analogy in here. I can mix all my metaphors, but you're sort of like getting into the engine, getting into the guts and figuring out how somebody does that. And inevitably you also figure out why, or you get an idea of why they're doing it that way. And so unless you've just taken that sound apart, you know, um, you're not going to really know how to, to make your own sound or, or why to make, you know, you're not going to know how or why to, to get your own sound and that, that, lead us back to voice so okay so who are some of the uh writers like you know when you when you were like post barry hannah and then I, and then i also want to ask you about larry brown because he was yeah. obviously a big figure in your life uh and your writing life specifically um but like who were who were some of the author, authors that you were covering in your early days um i went on a a giant faulkner bender which is you know um probably predictable being in oxford mississippi um, that's a very dangerous, uh, that's a very dangerous, um, one to imitate. Um, but then led on to people like Tom McGuane, um, Jim Harrison, Joe Williams, uh, Amy Hempel. There was a Cormac McCarthy infatuation for a while. Um, the standard Charles Bukowski. Uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah. The obligatory Bukowski. The obligatory period. Charles Bukowski <laughs> period. That, uh, yeah, every male writer from, I don't know, whatever, the late 80s to the maybe still uh, goes through. Um, but, you know, it was a lot of trying on different voices and, and different subjects. And, you know, the other thing about trying to find your own voice that I find a little troubling is that with fiction, I don't really care about my own voice necessarily i'm trying to channel other voices 
that's what's most important. My voice is, I'm just the conduit. This is going to sound a little spooky, I'm sorry. But, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to channel real people, real, other real voices. Right. So I think, you know, getting your antenna tuned so that you can take other voices that you hear and get them on the page is more important than finding your own, at least for fiction. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, because I think um, that's another, yeah, that's like seems to be like another pitfall of that find your voice thing is that it turns people like really far inside their own navel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And it can be uh, detrimental to the actual task at hand. Absolutely. Yeah. It turn into pretzel navels. So, so uh, Larry Brown, he comes into your life. Um, he does. How? How does that transpire? So Larry, so Barry had uh, encouraged me to write some short stories, and uh, well, not, I say encouraged me. He he, I had to write them for his class, um, but he encouraged me after I wrote them, and I had published a couple in a little, you know, alternative newspaper in Oxford, um, a weekly thing, back page short story. And at the time, I was 21 years old. I was hanging out at a bar in Oxford called the City Grocery, and. Larry Brown comes up to me. Now, I had not read a word of Larry at this point. I knew who he was vaguely. I knew he was a writer in town. And uh, he asked me if I was the one who had written uh, the stories. He asked the bartender. And uh, I said, yes. He invited me to go uh, this bar. It was the second story. There was a fine dining restaurant underneath. And he invited me to go to dinner with him and his wife. And uh, at the time, I don't think I'd probably eaten in about three days. <laughs> and I was more glad about a meal and I was about this compliment, and again, I was too dumb to know, um, you know, who Larry was. But that might almost that almost almost might be an advantage, like not knowing who Barry Hanna is, not knowing who Larry Brown is, because then you don't go in all loaded up with like, um, you know, uh, idol worship or I would. Yeah, be... I suppose my my ignorance has been a blessing throughout. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're just like you're like, hey, Barry, what's up, man? Here's a story. <laughs> well, Larry takes me downstairs with his wife to dinner. Now, during this dinner. Um, and and I, it was an instant connection. We start talking. We had the same at the you know we we just started talking about books um, in a way that you know I had some bookish friends, but I just you know it's sort of one of these connections that creatures gushing out of you, and suddenly you find somebody. And you, this goes back to what you're talking about with the music and that kind of social aspect to it, where suddenly you're just talking fast and you're trading authors. And what about him? Oh man, yeah. Did you read? You know. And at one point, the lyric excuses himself. And again, you have to imagine this. This is this, um, you know, from Mississippi, uh, a very fancy restaurant. And uh, he walks over to a table nearby, steps up on that. It was a four-top. Uh, there was a, a pair of middle-aged sort of uh, fancy folk sitting at the table. And he steps onto the edge of one of the chairs and then onto their food. And he starts dancing. And he's doing this slow grind with his cowboy boots in there, <laughs> shrimp and grits. <laughs> Um, you can't see me now, but I'm actually doing the, the, uh, the grind. <laughs> that helps. And I'm st- and uh, his wife is next to me, uh, and is burying her face in the napkin, horrified. And Larry is just eyes closed, doing this dance, and I'm just just dumbstruck, with my mouth open, watching. And wait, was there music playing? Yeah, there was music. You know, the, I don't know what the song was, but there's you know the restaurant. There's a song playing, and the song ends, and he steps down, comes right back to the table. And you know, at this time, the whole restaurant is frozen. You know, it's like busboys frozen in place. Like, is he drunk? Mata. Yeah, he was drunk at the time. Okay. And uh, and but I remember looking at him, going, I don't know what just happened, 
but I'm going to hang around with this guy forever. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, did like what happened with the people? Their their food? They just, they, yeah, just they got they got new food. I later heard that uh, there were uh, there, that there was some. Uh, uh, one of them was a banker who had refused Larry alone uh, alone when he wanted to quit the fire department to uh, to write full time. Um, so that there was. We- that was that revenge. Was that was his revenge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So how does this, you know, because this was like your apprenticeship, and you yeah. had, and this is something that I think is actually quite rare, is to have like a really intimate mentor relationship over a extended period of time. I think a lot of writers get it maybe in college or graduate school for that two or three years. We you know uh, that kind of condensed period, but yeah. uh, most of us, I think get it from books, you know, and reading, uh, reading books, whether it's the, the fiction or it's the memoir or it's the uh, literary biography. And you just sort of kind of piece it together that way. Yeah. Um, but like, what did that look like? Like how often were you guys hanging out? Was he giving, was there any structure to the instruction or was it no, something that no. No, in fact, you know, the word mentor kind of, I, I recall from the word mentor because it sounds so pompous uh, for what it was. Um, you know, I think if Larry and I had, had ever said the word mentor or protege, we would have busted out into laughter. Um, you know, we were just buddies. Um, and there was an age difference. I look back on it now and I think, you know, he, I'm the same age he was um, when, he, when he befriended me. And, you know, the idea right now of me, you know, plucking a 21-year-old aspiring writer off a bar stool just gives me hives. I can't imagine it. Um, <laughs> but I'm not as generous as he was. Uh, but we were just, you know, we were, like, we were just, we were like kids, sort of. I mean, I was a kid. He wasn't. Um, but who liked the same things? We liked, you know, we liked music. Uh, we liked playing guitars. We liked whiskey. And we liked books and, and writing. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't an apprenticeship. It was a friendship. But, and at the time, I didn't know I was getting education at all. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew it was, it didn't feel like it, I suppose. We're just driving around Lafayette County, Mississippi, and talking about books. But he was leading me to books. I mean, I don't think this was just he wasn't molding me, but, you know, I mean, I remember picking up the, the for I was at Square Books, which is a fantastic bookstore in Oxford, and, and picked up Sutri, Cormac McCarthy, and, and I'd never heard of Cormac at the time, and I looked on the back and it had comparisons to Melville and Faulkner. I guess that maybe my Faulkner period. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get this, you know, I'm going to get this book. And, and I went fishing that afternoon right from the bookstore with Larry, a little pond. And uh, we're out in the boat and we're just talking. And I said, hey, I was at the bookstore this afternoon. I picked up this book. Um, what's it called? This guy Cormac something, Sutri. Larry takes a uh, long breath and he his dear friends now in the dusty clockless hours of the dawn when the cats run high shouldered and lean and the water trucks run and no soul shall be saved save you I just mangled that by the way he didn't but he recited the entire page and a half for two page prologue of Sutri Jesus memory. Jesus and uh, <laughs> I remember looking at him and going okay well so right. I guess you, you've read it I, I guess I picked well yeah yeah um, but <laughs> But, uh, so I had this, this, this reading education, too, um, that he handed down to me. But again, at the time, it was just, you know, we were just going out to, to, to bars and, and drinking, and I, I didn't realize what it was I was, I was experiencing. Um, well, but that's the best kind of education. You don't even know you're getting it. You know, it's, yeah, that, yeah. it doesn't feel forced. It's just kind of, it's, it's built entirely on, like, friendship and, like, mutual interest or passion. Mutual interest. That's exactly it. Um, I ended up quitting college um, because I... And after taking Barry's class and then meeting Larry, I thought, well, this is okay. This is this is what I'm going to do. This is all I want to do. Um, and 
I, I took Barry's class for as long as they would let me. And when they finally said, you know, you just can't keep taking this one class over and over again, I said, well, then I'm done. Um, you know, I, don't, I know what I want to do. Hmm. Um, part of me regrets that at this point because I'm still paying off those student loans, but, <laughs> but there it is. Uh, so what about journalism? Because I know that you have, um, you know, made your living or at least partially made your living um, as a journalist over the years, and you got your start in Mississippi. I did. I had sort of failed my way. I was writing fiction at the time, and I'd failed my way out of bartending gigs and busboy gigs. And and there was an ad in a local paper for a six-dollar-an-hour reporter, and I thought, well, shit, I could do that. Um, and it, again, that's another pivot. I didn't. You know, I had no interest in journalism. I took a journalism class, but I found I loved it. And what I loved most about it was. Uh, journalism offered me this access to people's lives and very often in their rawest uh, most uh, you know vulnerable state i felt like a predator at this point but um <laughs> what i mean by that is that i could ask people anything really it's sort of terribly rude probing questions and they would answer me that's how i feel about this show that's why i do it <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? it is, it is, yeah. you know? I mean, I just yeah. ask, and people tell me. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they feel this obligation that they have to answer you. But, you know, I was covering murders in Yalabusha County, Mississippi, where, you know, I'm in a cinder block home, and there's a family, you know, pushing autopsy photos in front of me, and I'm 23, 24 years old, and they're saying, you know, explain this. And I'm completely out of my league. I'm, I am up against just the viscera of life um and but what i realized was that this was this was an astounding uh sort of offered me astounding ingredients for fiction it offered me this again this access um, to lives and i know that I, i'm afraid that i've just sounded really sort of um, predatory and ghoulish um no, no, no. Like but, a buzzard, but, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, um, well, I mean, you have to, I mean, because I was going to ask you, like a natural question would be, would you recommend um, journalism to the aspiring fiction writer? And it sounds like, I mean, it, it's hard to make a living as a journalist, increasingly it seems, but yeah. um, not, not that it's easy to make a living as a fiction writer, so <laughs> it might be easier. But I, I feel like as a training ground, there are a lot of writers who have taken that course and I, I'm interested, I, I guess, uh, assuming you would recommend it if the opportunity is there, um, I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing you specify, like, what are, what are some of the things that taught you that you take to fiction? On, on a, just on a craft level, there's that idea that you have to hook the reader, that you have a limited amount of space, and that you have a limited amount of time in which to do it. That is very instructive and helpful. Uh, it's very hard to be precious um, about your fiction, you know, when you're forced to be, at the time, turning out 30 inches of copy a day on various subjects. Um, and it, it made me realize that, that all the fluff about the muse and inspiration is just bullshit. Um, you, just have to put, you just have to be in the chair making your fingers move. Uh, so, you know, that was, that was good training, almost like muscle training, you know? Sure. Um, it's, dis and then, it's discipline. Yeah, the, so the discipline um, that it gave me, and then again, just 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 this ability to to enter other lives and to understand. And you gain 
empathy as a journalist. People probably don't believe that necessarily about journalists, but um, and maybe they all don't. But it's you know, uh, if you have empathy to begin with, you 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 gain more because you have to you have to look at, at, at all these situations from various viewpoints. And I'm talking about small town stuff, and I've gone on to do magazines and and all that. But I think the best training really for fiction was was being a general beat reporter. There's not many jobs like that available anymore. Where you know I had to cover school board meetings and and crime and fires and the colon cancer support group meeting and and all that. And so I was constantly like just pinballing from from one life to the next. The colon- Although I ended up being fired from that job. <laughs> as as an addendum, uh, yeah. I, I was fired <laughs> for yeah. for yeah. what? Uh, it was a Faulkner connection. I uh, so there was this, uh, an old man in Oxford named Moti Daniels who um, he was a great storyteller, rock and tour. He used to sit on the Oxford Town Square and just tell stories. And I knew Moti a little. Everyone in Oxford did, and he was famous for being having been Faulkner's bootlegger. And he would speak every year. The University of Mississippi would hold a Faulkner conference, and he would always have a, a, a presentation where he talk about selling Faulkner's whiskey. So Moti dies. I was also handling the obituaries at the time, and uh, I see the, the the form come over from the from the funeral home, and it just says Moti Daniels, farm laborer. You know, died at 79, however old he was. And I said to myself, well, "Good Lord, Moti was much more than a farm laborer." So I wrote what we might call an expanded obituary, um, based on you know what I knew about Moti and what he told me. I think nothing of it. I go to lunch and I come back and the publisher, it was a uh, well, the publisher was waiting for him and he says he wants to talk to me in his office. And he says uh, he points to the obituary and says, "Where did you get this information?" I said, "Well, that's you know Moti told me. Everybody knows that. That's you know, um, you know, it's that's." what he did he used to speak about it at the phone conference he says well we're not in the we're not in the practice of publishing people's crimes in their obituary and i think where i went bad was he was also a priest church baptist i said uh oh no bootleg is not a crime it was more like a service <laughs> just helping the man out for god's sake <laughs> yeah and that was that was my last day at the paper uh, so and then at that point i mean uh, like how did you make the transition because you went on to write uh, for glossies, you know. Like, mm-hmm. So how did? And that's a big leap to make from small town Mississippi, colon cancer support group meeting, beat writing. You know, like what? How did you make that leap? Um, well, the uh, the condensed answer is that at the same time there was a, a literary magazine in Oxford called the Oxford American that I was uh, pretty intimately involved with, and I was writing for them at the same time I was working for the newspaper. Um, I turned one of my Oxford Eagle stories into a piece. Um, it started at Esquire and ended up going to GQ. And so that was, you know, the old thing about having clips. And that just sort of led to um, to the glossies. Okay. So you, and you've written for, like, what? GQ, Esquire, Men's Health. You wrote a um, – what's the name of the bar column in the New York Times Magazine? I'm forgetting. Shaken and Stirred, yeah, Shaken in, and the, stirred. Uh, in the, yeah, the Sunday Style section. That's a great job. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I've, I've, I've bounced around. I've, I've used journalism for two things. One is to just follow my curiosities, and, and those curiosities often being fictional, fictionally based. Um, and the other is just to follow pleasures. Um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, when I, when I first started uh, writing for magazines, I, was, I did some outdoor stuff, and I thought, well, this is hilarious that I'm getting paid to go fish. <laughs> and then I started working for the Times and doing that 
cocktail column, and I was like, this is even more hilarious. <laughs> drink. It just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better, yeah. So if I can find someone to pay me to smoke, I will have <laughs> the trust back. So what about, uh, what about writing fiction during this time? Like, were you fitting it all in? No, I was writing horrible stuff. I was writing um, god-awful. I spent 10 years writing a 700-page stillborn novel oh. um, that was terrible. And okay, wait, wait, wait. I want to stop you yeah. here because this is, yeah. I always, I'm always comforted by these kinds of stories. I hear them from people on the show and I love them because <laughs> they, uh, cause I'm, you know, I'm you're always talking to people who have then gone on to write, um, you know, well-received books and have kind of made it through, but it's nice to know that it didn't come easily, which might sound sort of, uh, now I sound kind of like the buzzard, you know, like circling. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate yeah, that. But do you know what I'm saying, though? Uh -huh. you know, I mean, yeah. yes. 10 years, 700 pages, it didn't work yeah. out. Like, what? Yeah. at what point did you toss it? And what, was, and what was the aftermath like? So I started writing it while I was in Oxford. Um, and it might have been longer than 10 years if I really want to add up, and I don't want to do that math. Um, <laughs> Writers hate and, math. Yes, yeah. Um, and it's painful math, but... I had gotten an agent um, that I still have through that novel. Um, you know, Larry had had been at the time had been passing pages to him, and it was, and it was. I just had everything invested in this novel, but it it, it was. You know, I started having that that bad gut feeling. I don't know, maybe four four years into it, where I just felt like I'm faking this. You know, I don't I don't believe this. Like these, these, these people, they're kind of like puppets. I can make them do anything. That's a bad feeling. When you can make your characters do anything, you know that something's not right. Your characters should resist you. You know, they should be disobedient. And, but I was, I was invested. Everything was in it. And I went to a, a writer's retreat even um, out in Wyoming. And I sat for two weeks just, just doing nothing and pretending to be working on this novel. And, and it was horrible. And at one point I thought, you know, maybe I'm just that old cliche. Maybe I'm just a journalist who has the novel in the drawer. And maybe I just need to suck it up and accept that. Um, but I started working on this other novel after a while on the side. It was my, you know, it was like, which became Dear American Airlines. Okay. And uh, so I was cheating on my novel with another novel. <laughs> and... You know, I went to my, I, and I was, I remember asking, I had a friend who was a, a literary agent, and I said, what do I do? You know, my, my, my agent's calling me, how's a novel coming? He's been, he'd been very patient for all these years. And I'm starting to say, man, the writing's coming really well. But I wasn't talking about the novel, I was talking about this other one. <clears throat> he said, no, you got to tell him. And, uh, and when I did, he, he was not particularly happy to hear that I, you know, it started, you can imagine, after 10 years, you've been, <laughs> been waiting on this client. He says, guess what, I've started another one. Um, but you know, he gave me a little, gave me a little rope. So, all right, you know, go, go ahead, whatever. Uh, and that became Dear American Airlines, and that, that sort of liberated me. But um, it probably should have happened many years earlier. And how fast did it? And how fast did that one uh, get done? Less than a year. Less than a year. Yeah, after after all that. But you know, I look back on that time, and I can't regret those lost years and that lost novel um, because. You know, it's sort of the negative capability thing. I learned what I wasn't capable of. I learned who I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I learned the writer um, that I thought I was wasn't who I was. 
I don't know if I just made any sense with that. But, no, I get it. I get it. I mean, you know, but I, I rinsed myself out. Yeah, it's like I always call it like the throat clearing. It's like in any long form book project, it's almost inevitable that like a huge chunk of like the first 100 or 150 pages are going to get excised because you wind up realizing in retrospect, or at least that's the way it is for me, you know, that mm-hmm. you, you wind up realizing you were just sort of clearing your throat before you actually said what you wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're just, you just start walking off in a direction and, and you don't know where the direction is. And then at a certain point you go, oh, I see where I'm headed and, you know, I, I, I shouldn't have even started there. Um, that analogy, but I think, yeah, I think we're talking about the same thing. So, uh, with want not, uh, you know, obviously dear American airlines had a great, um, it was a great debut, great critical reception. Um, New York times book review, Richard Russo. I mean, it's kind of a, a dream debut in a lot of respects. Like, did that give you a, a burst of confidence? And I mean, it seems like it should have, but then again, like, I don't feel like it gets any easier, you know, like it, it, you want to think that the next book is going to be that much easier to write, but you're always starting over with a blank page. You are, and um, and that's the tragedy of it. Uh, no, it gave me no extra confidence. Um, mostly I felt like uh, I had just gotten away with something, and that the next time, I surely I wouldn't. Um, you, and and, and why not was, was a horrible slog for me, and I'm hoping this next novel that I'm working on is, is uh, maybe at some point they get easier, although part of me wants them to get easier, and the other part of me knows that if they do, that's probably not a good thing. Right. Um, so it's still you against this blank page. Yeah. And just because you filled the page before doesn't mean you get to fill the page with the same thing you did before. And and that goes back to the masochism of it. So with want, how long did want not take you to write? Five years. Five years. Were there how like were there any major false starts or like did you wind up? chucking like drafts of the thing or like you know yeah hundreds yeah hundreds of pages um and i got completely bogged down in the middle and <laughs> flirted with the idea of just quitting um and but you gutted but, it out but, but yeah but just 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 endured and you, um, i mean you must be pleased with i mean it's gotten a great once again a great rollout great critical reception um you know do you feel good about it i feel relieved yeah Relieved, just like um, few. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I hope, yeah, I know. I hope it doesn't feel like I'm an asshole. Um, no, no, no. But, I get it. But um, you know, I, yeah, I just mostly, I, I just, I just feel relief, um, and you know, and yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, before I let you go, uh, like thematically, like there seems to be a through line uh, with these two, bo- you know, these first two books, um, the theme of waste. You know, uh, the wasting of one's life is what I think of wasting of time, the wasting of so many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you're aware of that, uh, right? I mean, you yeah, well to some to some degree. Although you know, themes themes are hard. Um, it's sort of like, you know, what's the theme of your life? I don't know. Um, and so, if for others, I think it's easier for them to see the themes. I guess I have questions um, more than themes. Themes sound to me like statements. Or something I want to say, and maybe I'm just parsing here. But for me, um, a theme is more of a question, just a question I want to ask, and it goes back to that central question of all fiction: What if? What if this happened? You know, um, and and then you know, then you take other questions about certain 
uh, fixations that you might have in life. And yeah, I'm sh- obviously waste um, is one of them. And Benny and Dear American Always is a guy who, who squandered his own life. Um, my characters in Wantnod um, squander lives, squander stuff. Um, so yeah, I think they're, yeah, um, there is a lot of that. Where that will go into the next book, I, I, I don't know. Again, because that's, that's that wiring in the back of the head. Well, sure. Well, and I think like, you know, just to like touch upon the idea of theme, it's never a starting point, or at least not for me. I feel like it's always something that you can only see like, either towards the end or after the thing's done, and the, or somebody tells you, you know? Yeah. yeah uh, but yeah. It's, it's never a starting point, I don't think. It seems like a really hard starting point, you know, unless I guess you're asking yourself an explicit question and the thing flowers from there. But um, it seems like something you discover, like the thing tells you what its themes are, you know, as you kind of muddle your way through it. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. I don't think you know John Updike started couples by saying, um, "I want to write something on the on the theme of infidelity." Um, you know, I think he, he started it with, with with characters. I mean, I think you start with you start with people, um, and as Larry would say, you start with a person, and then you just throw some trouble at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Well, yeah. uh, it's been great talking with you. This was really fun. And uh, I congratulate you on your success with the new book and, and uh, with Dear American Airlines and, and all the journalism stuff. It's, uh, it seems like you've got a good thing going. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, I am envious of your shed. I will, I will remain envious of your you know, separate structure, even yeah. with its exposed insulation. Yeah. I should send you a picture, and then you won't be envious anymore. But, yeah, the separateness right. is good. All right, man. Well, listen, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. And best of luck on the next book. Thank you very much. All right, folks, there you go. That is Jonathan Miles. Go get his novel. It is called Want Not. It is available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find Jonathan online at johnnymiles.com. That's J-O-N-N-Y. And uh, he's also on the Facebook. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Squarespace. If you need a new website or an online portfolio, look no further. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. No credit card required. And when you sign up, be sure to enter the offer code OTHER12. Once again, that offer code is OTHER12. You do that, you get 10% off. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Uh, not the Christmas music from the top of the show. Uh, the other music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, don't forget about that app, the free official Other People app, available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best way to listen to this program and to access uh, the full archives, premium content, Please go get the app if you haven't done that yet. The app itself is free. Uh, okay. So the shows are going to keep coming through the holidays uh, to the best of my knowledge. As I've, as I've mentioned before, uh, I'm going to try very hard to stick to the same uh, schedule as we always do. But uh, as I said uh, at the top of the show, we're going to be traveling. Uh, I've got some family stuff over Christmas. It's possible that I could miss a day or two, but hopefully not. Uh, I'm going to try to come through for you, but if for some reason I, uh, you know, I miss, uh, I will let you know via Twitter. You can follow me. Uh, my handle is at other people pod. And, uh, also, uh, I'll let you know at the, at the show's official website, of course, and on Facebook, please remember that Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Andre Gide and George Elliott all played the piano and that Balzac was five feet, two inches tall. Thanks again to Johnny miles. Go get his novel. Uh, I will be back on Wednesday with another episode another conversation uh, with another writerly human person. Okay, uh, hang in there. It's almost over this uh, this holiday season. It's almost 2014. 
Is anyone else looking forward to, to uh, getting rid of this year? Is it just me? You know, I don't want to sound like uh, sour grapes entirely because a lot of good stuff happened this year. But uh, on the whole, <clears throat> on the whole, I will not be sad to see 2013 go. I just won't. So we'll talk to you soon. Don't shop too much. Don't drive yourself uh, crazy. Don't drink too much at the uh, office Christmas party. That always ends badly. You know better. You know, you don't want to wind up like singing karaoke with the chief financial officer (laughs) or some such thing. Don't do that. You don't want that memory. Plus, sharing a microphone. Pet peeve of mine. It always makes me a little bit uncomfortable to watch two human beings sing into a microphone simultaneously. You know what I'm talking about? Where their heads and their mouths are really close together and the microphone is there uh, looking vaguely phallic in between them. You see what I'm saying? Can you visualize this? Just get two microphones. (laughs) How hard is that? I have two microphones, you know, for my uh, podcast. One microphone per person. That's the formula. It's always worked best that way. Okay, so uh, take care of yourselves. Drink plenty of water. Breathe. Breathe. You can do this. You you can breathe. (laughs) Look at you. You're very talented. (laughs) 